Before I get going 100 miles an hour, I have been asked to remind you, ladies that normally meet on Monday nights and you normally are meeting every other Monday night, well, you're meeting every Monday night tomorrow night because next Monday night you're not meeting. For those of you who are thoroughly confused, if you normally come to the Monday night Bible study, come tomorrow night. Don't come next week, okay? And if you're even more confused, see Tony Grice about that, okay? So, yeah, Pastor Andy and I sit in either his office or my office on Monday mornings, and we go through the music for every Sunday, and um, we, he, he really wanted to sing that song, and he kept trying to get me to talk him out of singing the song, and I'm like, I'm not going to talk you out of it, dude. Just sing the song. And so, so it gives you a little bit of a clue as to, as to how that works, and I'm so glad he taught that song to us. Um, and, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning because it's our great privilege to go back to Romans chapter 1 this morning and little pop quiz. Romans is all about? Romans is all about? Righteousness. There is, there is a vital relationship between the gospel of Jesus Christ and righteousness. In fact, the whole theme of Romans, which is found down in verses 16 and 17, let's look at it again, it points us to that relationship where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There is, there is an undeniable, clear, strong connection between the gospel and righteousness. You can't talk about the gospel without talking about righteousness. And you really can't talk about righteousness without talking about the gospel. The two go hand in hand. Because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God to us. It's in the gospel that we see the righteousness of God. If God weren't a righteous God, then we would all be fine then. Because none of us are righteous, but He is a righteous God. He is a holy God, and He demands that you and I be holy and righteous. That's the good news, bad news of the gospel. The good news is is that He imparts righteousness to us. The bad news is, is none of us are righteous enough. And we never will be. And the gospel reveals, it brings to light the righteousness of God for us. If I were to ask you this question this morning, I wonder how you might respond. And we're not going to take the time to get all your responses. But I want you to consider the answer to this question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? If you're a newer member of this fellowship, you were posed that question on a, on a questionnaire, were you not? You were asked, what is the gospel? And it was something that, that we as leaders in the church several years ago decided, that is the clarifying question. We, 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 ask, for, we ask for a testimony, we want to know how you were saved, but we also want to know, more importantly than that, what your understanding of the gospel is, because if you don't understand what the gospel is, you have no idea what you were saved from or what you were saved for. It's one of those questions, quite honestly, that the answer or how you answer it is of paramount importance. It's so important to Paul 
that as he is writing this letter to introduce himself to this church in Rome, a church that he's never visited, a church that he really doesn't have much connection with, but he wants to go there, he wants to one day be there, as he writes to introduce himself to that, it is so important to Paul that he begins with the gospel. He begins this letter with the gospel. And in our text this morning, which Andy read at the beginning of the service, we come face to face with the glorious gospel of our God. And it's in this passage this morning that, that my desire is to, to, to come and look at it new and fresh, that, that we see it so glorious that by the time that we're done this morning, you can't help but want to submit to it, that you love it all the more, and that you will share it with others. That's, that's a big ask this morning. That's a big ask this morning. But, but the goal is, is that you would see the gospel so new and so fresh this morning that it would absolutely change the way that you live tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. when you're getting up and stumbling around trying to get ready for work. So let's read it again one more time. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, nothing reveals your glory more than the gospel. Nothing reveals it more than that. Against the black backdrop of sin, the gospel shines brightly. And so this morning, Father, open our eyes to see the dazzling beauty of the gospel. Open our ears to receive the truth. Open our hearts to be changed by the gospel, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, note takers, let me give you my five points. Chances are I'm going to get flying so fast. You're going to be like, what was that point again? What I want us to see about the gospel this morning is, first of all, I want you to see the gospel promised. Secondly, I want you to see that the gospel is a person. Thirdly, I want you to see the gospel's point. Fourthly, I want you to see the gospel proclaimed. And fifthly, don't throw garbage at me. I want you to see the gospel's prosperity. Not the prosperity gospel, okay? If I die of a heart attack before we get to the end of the message, I want you to understand that I am not going to preach to you the prosperity gospel. But I, want, I had to keep peas, okay? Did you catch that? I had to alliterate. The gospel's prosperity. Let's begin in verse 2, and I want you to see and consider that the gospel was promised. Anywhere Paul went and anywhere Paul ministered, Paul's ministry was always under attack. And, and the best way to attack Paul's ministry, because he was a minister of the gospel, was to attack his message, to ruin his credibility. 
And even before Paul ever got to Rome, his, his ministry was under attack. And so as Paul begins this letter, he has to kind of, in a way, sort of defend his ministry as a true apostle. And, and he, he already did that in verse 1. We saw that last week where he says, I am an apostle. I literally am one of the apostles. But he also has to defend his message. And the rumor that was going around about Paul, it wasn't just in Rome, but it was everywhere where Paul went to minister was, was that this message that Paul is preaching was original with Paul. Paul made this stuff up. This isn't what we see in the scriptures that we have. And you have to remind yourself, what scriptures did they have in that day? They had the Old Testament. And in and, and the Old Testament, it was, was, was the primary, was the sole document that those who practiced the Jewish faith went from, right? And so now, these people, many of them became Judaizers where they're trying to, to, to indoctrinate more people in the Jewish faith. They have to argue with Paul because Paul's using the same scriptures that they're using to, to actually teach something different than what they taught. And so now they have to accuse Paul of making this stuff up. But what I want you to see this morning is, is that the gospel has always been in the heart and mind of our God. It's always been there. And Paul's proclamation of the gospel was not something new. He didn't come up with some new dogma, some new teaching. Which, let me just interject a little point here for you. Anytime you're listening to somebody who claims to be preaching the word and they say, this is radically new, discount that right away. Is this book radically new? No. And so we really shouldn't be coming up with radically new ideas. Paul's message was not something new. In fact, it says here that it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What he's saying there is, is the gospel is just, is, it is, runs through every page of the Old Testament. Do you know that this morning, that the gospel is not just a New Testament idea? It's an Old Testament idea. The gospel can be found all through the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament idea. In fact, it was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, I want you to go look with that. We're just going to look at one of the prophecies of the gospel. We're going to look at the first one in Genesis chapter 3. Turn there with me. I don't want to assume too much, but I'm going to assume that you, you know the account of what happened in the garden, right? Adam and Eve are created. They're put in the garden. It's a, it's a perfect place. And, and one day, the serpent starts talking to Adam and Eve, and he gets them to doubt the goodness of God, doesn't he? The serpent being taken over by Satan himself, right? And this serpent starts to interact with Eve, and basically he starts to get them to question God, and what happens after that is tragic, and you and I are bearing the scars of that to this day, and the fact that you and I have a sin nature, it's because our, the, our original parents, Adam and Eve, were the first sinners. And so every person who's been born has been born with a sin nature. And we might be tempted to think that somewhere between Genesis chapter 2 and sometime in Genesis chapter 3, God sat in heaven and went and did this. Man, I wasn't expecting that to happen i got to come up with a plan B. 
I got to come up with something that's going to, 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 to redeem this whole thing. I got to come up with a plan that, that's going to work here because I wasn't anticipating that when I put Adam and Eve in a perfect garden that they were going to screw it up. If you know anything about God, and if you don't know this, you should know this, God has no plan B's. Because God is sovereign. God has, he needs no plan B's. He always has a plan A, and his plan always gets done. And so, when we come to Genesis chapter 3.15, in the middle of, of putting curses on the serpent and, and, and telling man and woman what's going to happen to them, he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman. You want to know why the world's a terrible place? Because the world, by its very definition right now, is a place of conflict. It's a conflict between ultimate good, the, the goodness of God, and, and the horrible evil that has been brought in our world. Our world is a place of conflict. And you and I live in the middle of this place of conflict, don't we? So much so that we feel it in our own hearts. Our flesh reflects the evil that's all around us, doesn't it? And it's drawn to it. And, and, and we have the Spirit of God, those of us who are believers in there, telling us what to do. And, and, and it's pulling us in one direction, and our flesh is fighting against it every day, isn't it? Don't believe me, read the book of Galatians. Paul talks about it there explicitly. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then he makes this bold pronouncement. He shall crush or bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And you're like, I don't see any gospel in there. I don't see a cross. I don't see death, burial, resurrection. It's there. Because what God has announced very early on in time is this. Hey, Satan, just so you know, this is how this all plays out. Be aware, Satan, this is how it all plays out. You're going to produce a line your offspring, and I'm going to produce a line too. I'm going to produce some offspring. And my offspring is going to one day literally crush your offspring in the head and declare total victory over you. And that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is preaching here, this gospel, is nothing new. The first recording of the news is almost as old as time itself, isn't it? And if we had the time, we would, we would jet tour through the Old Testament and we would find that there are at least 300 explicit testimonies about the coming of the Messiah there. And I'm being conservative in that number. And what Paul is doing is he's just using the scriptures that he has and to teach others that the gospel is real, that it's always been God's plan. In fact... Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. I love this because Peter himself says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What's interesting is you can search all through the Old Testament and you're going to have a hard time finding grace there in terms of finding the English word grace. But what you will find is the idea of grace all through it. 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which the angels long to look into. Peter taught that the Old Testament proclaimed the gospel. And Peter said this, the message of Scripture in total is the gospel. It's not entirely wrong to say this, that this book right here is the gospel. It really is. From the very beginning to the very end, it's all gospel-centric. It's always been about the gospel. The gospel wasn't God's plan B, it was his plan A. It was in his mind in eternity past. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, I want you to see this. The gospel has always been in the mind of God. Some of you are like, Ephesians 1, he is going to get right out on the thin ice, isn't he? Yes, I am. I'm getting right on it. It's not really thin, it's actually very thick, it's pretty solid. Blessed be the God, verse 3, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When did he do this? Even as he chose us in him. When does it say in your Bible, church? Before Adam and Eve, church? Before the first sin? God has no plan B's, church. It was always in his mind. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Was it a loving action? Yes. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Back to Romans 1. And as you're going back to Romans 1, let me point out to you that at the, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 13, verse 8, tells us that the Lamb's book of life was written before the foundation of the world. <laughs> the gospel is as old as eternity past because it's always been in the mind of God. And the Old Testament writers were used to promise it. This gospel that you and I sang about this morning, it has always been in God's mind, it has always been his plan A. The gospel was promised by the writers long before Paul. Secondly, the gospel is a person. Look with me at verses three and four. So the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his what? Who? Son. Who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is God's Son. He himself is God and he is the Son. Who is that person, church? It's Jesus Christ, right? You see, what Paul is pointing out here and even what we read in our psalm this morning is, is that God had made a promise to David that my kingly line will be established through you forever. And who is the fulfillment of that promise? Why, it's none other than Jesus Christ himself. Christ will sit on the throne of his father David for how long? Forever and ever. 
But make no mistake, as Paul writes it there, he's giving us, he's giving us some theology. He's not saying that Jesus Christ just came as a spirit or that he was some kind of manifestation. He was descended from David according to the flesh. He was a literal man who literally lived on this earth and literally lived a perfect life for 33 years and then he laid down his own life. He was born of a virgin, God in the flesh, God with us. The four Gospels give us detailed testimony concerning his life, his birth, his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And what's interesting, all four of them are consistent in their presentation, and we shouldn't be surprised by that, because it's a literal, historical truth. What's interesting here, though, is is this word at the beginning of verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God. The word declared is an interesting word. It's, it's an old Greek word that deals with, with how you distinguish between the sky and land on the horizon. When you look out at the horizon, there's a clear line of demarcation, isn't there? You can tell where land ends and where sky begins. When you're flying, it's kind of cool to see it that way, isn't it? You, you, can, you can kind of just look out and you can see, like, you can see the horizon, right? And what he's saying here is, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the clearest, clearest delineation. It is the clearest proof, if you will, that it's the greatest proof that not only is Jesus just a man, but that he is the Son of God. And in fact, he introduces another title for him, a title that, that he writes about in Philippians chapter 2, where he talks about him when he says, look at verse 4, he says, Jesus Christ, what? Our what? Lord. Some of you are thinking Philippians chapter 2, where it says that, that because of what Christ did in emptying himself and coming and dying, that God has bestowed on him a name that is above every name. What is that name? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is what? Lord. That's the name that's above all names. And let's understand here, the work of Christ is so central to the gospel that it's okay to say, it's good to say that the gospel itself is a person. The gospel is Christ himself. Yes, the gospel originated in the mind of God the Father. Yes, the Spirit was at work in the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus is the gospel. He is the one who laid down his life. He is the one that was buried. He is the one that rose again. Jesus is the gospel. You can't explain the gospel to anyone apart from it being about Jesus. You can't. And if you're trying, you're not doing it right. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, summarizes the gospel. How does he summarize it? Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Christ was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus isn't just the person of the gospel. He is the gospel. Let's move on. We want to see the point of the gospel. And Paul clearly states the point of the gospel here in verse 5. This is one that I think gets misrepresented sometimes, quite honestly. And it, I think it gets misrepresented by good-hearted, good-meaning people. 
you might say that the point of the gospel is the salvation of souls. Anybody ever been tempted to say that? The point of the gospel is the salvation of souls. You might say it this way. The point of the gospel is so that God can impart eternal life. Those are not terrible answers, but those are not the sum total answer. And if we're not careful with those answers, we can make the gospel all about man. You can make the gospel all about man. You say, well, isn't the gospel all about the redemption of man? Yes, but it's even more than that. Notice verse 5. Paul says, through whom, through Christ, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What Paul's saying there is, he's talking about his own self personally here. I've received grace from God, and I've received apostleship. And when you think about it, what the gospel brings to us is, it brings us grace. It gives us something that we don't deserve. And it also, when we receive the gospel, when we by faith appropriate the gospel, it gives us our calling. Does it not? It does. But keep going. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of whose name? For the sake of whose name, church? God's name. For the sake of God's name. Understand this. The whole point of the gospel is is that God is most glorified in his gospel. Yeah, mankind gets redeemed. Sinners get saved. People go to heaven. Other people go to hell. But let's understand, the whole point of the gospel is so that our God would be ultimately glorified. The point of the gospel is that God imparts grace. He gives us a calling to bring us to an obedient faith for his glory, for the sake of his name. The ultimate point of the gospel is that God and God alone gets the maximum glory. Think about that the next time you're teaching children about the gospel. It's not about them, it's about a greater God. Think about that when you consider your own testimony. It's not about how wonderful you were. It's about how great God is. One day, whether or not you'll do it on this earth, you will be before that God and you will have to confess his greatness because you will see it in a way that you can't see it on this earth. I read Ephesians 1, but let me remind you what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He does all this. He, he, he blesses us with spiritual blessing. He chose, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted to the praise of his glorious grace. One of the reasons that Pastor Andy and I are so careful about the songs that we sing is because there's so much garbage being written today under the label Christian that makes the gospel all about me the way God makes me feel, the way, the way that I get emotional about God. Guess what? I can sing Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery and get pretty emotional. Can you? The fact that in the stead of ruined sinners named Dan Scarberry, Christ hung on a tree. The emphasis isn't on me, it's on the Christ who hung on the tree. God forbid we ever start singing music here that makes it all about us. I'll quit. Or you should fire me if I let it happen. 
The gospel is God giving grace. And there's no gospel apart from God giving grace. You know, the gospel says this, that our sin problem is so bad, our rebellion is so great, our willful running from God is so great that God had to intervene, and he had to intervene in a way that, that is unfathomable, that he would send his son to die. That's grace. We gotta move. But before I move, Notice the kind of faith that he talks about in verse 5. How many of you have ever heard this? This is a classic sports interview thing, like, like after a Super Bowl or, or some World Series championship, they'll interview somebody, and he gives like the, the Christian interview. Have you ever heard those? The Christian interview? Or, or you'll see it on the news sometimes. Somebody will like go through a tragedy, and some, some you know, bimbo reporter will come put a microphone in front of their face. Did I just say that out loud? I think I did. Um, and they'll ask them, how are you getting through this? And they'll say something like this, my faith. You ever heard that? My faith. My faith. And, and, the, and what's implied there is, is, well, you know, I believe that there's a God, and I believe that God's doing... But, but, there's a difference between just faith and what Paul says here in chapter 5, or verse 5 of chapter 1. Obedient faith. Obedient faith. In fact, it's so important to Paul that he bookends this letter with this idea of obedient faith. As he's presenting the gospel, he talks about the need for obedient faith. Flip over to chapter 16, because at the very end, when he's writing his doxology at the end of this thing, he talks about the same thing. Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that it was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about what? The obedience of faith. Look up here, church. If you claim to have a faith in Jesus Christ and you don't have obedience, then you're not a child of God. Did I say that you're perfect? No. But if you claim to have a saving faith and you are not by, by, by the general direction of your life walking in obedience, you are in danger of hellfire because you are not truly saved. True faith is an obedient faith. That's why it's so hard whenever some of you in this room know this, you're, you have a child who's now an adult in their 30s or 40s, and they made a profession of faith when they were a young person, but you see no obedience in your life because your soul knows. Your heart knows. That child is resting on some, some prayer that he prayed some 30 years ago, and it's not walking in obedience because true faith is an obedient faith. Otherwise, the gospel's cheap. Say, so what do you mean by that, Pastor Dan? If the gospel, if the death of Christ is so paramount for the saving of us, shouldn't it totally transform us as well? If the gospel is really what we say it is, shouldn't it have a lasting effect in one's life? Church, should it not? Should it not produce obedience? 
And for us to say that it's just enough to pray a prayer and then go on and live your life merrily this direction, and, and, and even though the gospel tells us to live this direction, is just lying to ourselves. It has to be an obedient faith. And here's the good news. If you truly have been transformed, you will have an obedient faith. Okay, I digressed quickly. Point number four. The gospel is to be proclaimed. Look at verse six. Or end of verse five, excuse me. So he says, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome. The gospel was intended to be proclaimed. The gospel is for all the nations. A couple weeks ago, if you were here, you heard Pastor Andy preach about this under the subject of discipleship and those disciplines that we're supposed to have as believers. And, and one of those disciplines is, is that we're called to be disciple makers. We're called to disciple others. Discipleship begins with evangelism. It begins with the proclamation of a gospel. You cannot be a follower of Jesus until you respond to the gospel. Those who have been transformed by the gospel are the ones who are called to spread the good news. Just think about it. It makes the most sense, doesn't it? How many of you hate going into a store where they have people who are trying to sell stuff to you, like from other, like you go into a Sam's Club or a Costco or something and they got some third party guy in there trying to sell you something? You know what I'm talking about? Like, sign up for this cable service, sign up for this. I go 10 aisles out of my way to avoid those people. One of the things I'd love to do, though, is I do get caught by them. I'd like to ask them, do you use this stuff? Like, do you use this service? Well, no, no. Like, then why are you selling it? Why are you so excited about it? You know, one of the saddest things to me is, is that there are men and women in pulpits all across our country today and around the world who are trying to sell the gospel and they haven't truly experienced it. They don't know it any better than they know that I'm preaching in Johnstown right now. <laughs> Folks, if the gospel has truly transformed you, though, how can you not want to share it, though? If the gospel really is as good as what the Bible portrays it to be, how can we not want that news to get out? And yet we're too busy talking about political parties and who's going to get voted in and this, that, and the other. That stuff is all going away, church. The gospel and what it produces will last forever. We're all worried about who won this game or whatever. And I'm, I'm there with you on that. But that stuff's all going away. The gospel will last forever. And its results are, are they're eternal. We all get wrapped up in the wrong stuff, people. It grieves me when I hear that Christians get together and all they can do is complain about other people or complain about the situation. When Christians get together, we ought to be gloriously rehearsing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our hope, is it not? Oh no, let's just complain about the weather and complain about who's in office. 
that is like the lowest hanging fruit you will ever find. Let's talk about King Jesus. Let's talk about King Jesus. The gospel is to be proclaimed. Finally, I didn't die of a heart attack, okay? We made it. <laughs> the gospel's prosperity. What does the gospel provide to those who are called and who respond in obedient faith? What, I mean, what is the fruit of this? What, what is so good about it? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Look, look at verse 7. We'll actually start in verse 6. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, the first fruit of the gospel is we get a new master. We get a new master. We, get, we, we don't have to serve the slaveholder sin anymore. We get to serve the king of kings and lord of lords. Does that excite you, church? You don't have to be under the control of sin anymore. Now, doesn't mean you're not going to have to fight sin, but you don't have to be controlled by it anymore. But apart from Christ, you have no choice but to be controlled by sin. But because of what Christ has done and because of obedient faith that responds to it, you get to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. You get to be on the winning team for eternity. Yeah, the world calls us losers. <laughs> you can call me little L loser because one day I'm going to be a big W winner. What else does the gospel do for us? Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. Let that sink in. Look up here. How many love a newborn baby? They're so cute and lovable until they start filling diapers and spitting up on you, keeping you awake at four in the morning. But every little newborn baby has a huge problem, don't they? They're all wicked, vile sinners just like you and I are. And here's the thing. The Bible says very clearly that God hates sin. Doesn't it say that? That's a big problem because all of us are born into sin, are we not? It's a big problem. But what the gospel does, it turns us into objects, people that God loves. And all of us go through life looking for something or someone to love us. We spend so much money on pets because supposedly pets will love us unconditionally. I think pets know better. They're like, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> he feeds me though, keeps me warm. I fake a little love and he keeps feeding me, so it's a good deal for me. <laughs> pets are probably smarter than us. I mean, have you ever looked at a cat? They just know. I digress. But we spend all our life looking for something to love us. And here's the thing. The God of this universe, according to his word, says this, that he sets his 
love on us. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't deserve that love. And yet he loves you all the more. That's what the gospel does. We're loved with an everlasting love. A love that is always working to accomplish what is good for us. Even when it doesn't look like it. And some of you have had to live that out. And some of you know that the only thing that got you through that was a confidence in knowing that my God loves me. We're not just, we don't just have a new owner. We don't just get the love of God. But notice what else he says here. And called to be saints. Literally, we are set apart and we're made holy. I love this. Because there's not a one of us in this room that is holy this morning. There's not a one of us in this room who is holy this morning in terms of what we think and how we act and what we do. But yet God looks at us and he declares us. He has set us apart. He has made us holy. That's what the idea of being called a saint is. I'm going to go ahead and bash the Roman Catholic Church for a second, okay? You okay with that? They go through this whole rigmarole to declare people holy, and they totally miss the whole thing. All of us who are in Christ Jesus are holy. We're all saints. I don't have to go through some committee to be declared holy. God declares me holy. Do you realize what that means? Because I'm declared holy, I can be in his presence. Because I'm declared holy, I can go to the throne of grace at any time and approach my Father God because I'm in the presence of holiness and he declares me holy so I get to walk right into the throne room of heaven. And I get to live there one day forever. I'm a little excited about Romans, are you? But notice there's more. But wait, there's more. You've heard me rail about the whole use of blessings, right? (laughs) Paul doesn't just go with blessings. Here's what he starts with. Grace and peace. He actually names the blessings. Grace and peace. Where does that come from? It comes from God. It comes from the gospel, does it not? It comes from the gospel. You see, you see, it's through grace that the hostilities that you and I have with our God are dissolved and, and they all melt away as our sins are forgiven. And, and this results in a peace that passes all understanding. If you're not in Christ here this morning, you ought to have no peace in your soul. But if you are the child of God here this morning, you ought to have ultimate peace because the hostility between you and God has all been dissolved away. Would you agree with me that this prosperity is far better than the cheap gospel coming from many pulpits today? (laughs) Would you agree with me on that? This isn't a cheap, cheap prosperity gospel. And here's the thing, you've heard me say it before and I'll say it again. Prosperity gospels are preaching that you can get everything you need right in this life. Guess what? I don't want the best this life has to offer. I want something far better in another life. So how do we respond to this glorious gospel? How do we respond to that? If you're not a believer, if you're not the child of God, if you're not a Christian, I can't think of other ways to put it. 
I would beg of you, receive by faith today, an obedient faith, the grace that God has given to you. If you're not the child of God, respond to the gospel today. Turn from your sin to serve Christ as your Lord. Reject sin as a taskmaster and say there's something far greater. There's someone far greater. But believing friend, can I give you three ways to respond to this gospel? The old hymn writer wrote it this way. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. I love that. Ponder anew. First and foremost, contemplate the gospel. Think about the gospel. Don't just think about it on Sundays and Wednesdays. Contemplate it every morning. Contemplate the gospel. Let it sink in. I was a hopeless sinner, no hope of God's grace, yet he chose me. He rescued me. He loves me. Not because I'm so great, so that he gets all the glory. Take time. You ever been someplace that's so beautiful on this earth? Like a beach somewhere, or a mountain somewhere, or some waterfall or something, and you just stood before it and you were just like, some of you people don't like to go outdoors. You do it, you do it on your computer, okay? I mean, have you just st- have you ever stood there and just felt the power of a waterfall and just been like, go stand in front of the gospel for a while and see if it doesn't do the same thing for you. Go stand in front of the gospel and see if it doesn't move you the same way. Secondly, how do we respond to the gospel? We live in obedient faith. The same obedient faith that it takes to save us is how we are to live. That's the power of the gospel every day. And if you and I aren't doing point one by rehearsing and standing in front of the gospel, we're going to miss out on all the power that the gospel has for us. Here's the thing that the gospel does, and we're going to unpack this over and over as we go through Romans. It frees us from having to produce our own righteousness. We can live in God's grace and obediently trust and follow him because of the gospel. And then thirdly, broadcast the gospel this week. Live it out. Make the gospel a part of your vocabulary. If you've got kids at home, be talking about the gospel. In your places of work, I know it'll get you in hot water with your boss. Guess what? He needs the gospel too, or she does, right? Broadcast the gospel. You know, I'm so grateful. We still live in a community where we're allowed to broadcast the gospel. You may not realize this, but, and I'm not saying this to toot anybody's horn, but in the, in the last year or so, we get, as elders, we have been invited to go pray at the beginning of city council meetings in Johnstown. You know what I do? I pray the gospel. <laughs> you know why? You know why? Because I can, and too. Because that's the only hope for Johnstown. It's the only hope for Johnstown is the gospel. 
I got asked to go pray at my township's meeting this week, at the beginning of their meeting. You know what I prayed? I prayed the gospel. You know why? Because the people in my township, you know what they need more than anything? The gospel. They don't need to worry about how to fight off intel, that evil dark empire that's coming. They need the gospel. What do you need more than anything, church? What does your neighbor need more than anything? The gospel. So let's live it out. Father, we praise you for your glorious gospel. The very fact that Christ would come and die, that he would submit himself to the point of death, even a cross death, and that he would be buried and that he would rise again so that you would be glorified by calling sinners like Dan Scarberry to repentance is just amazing, God. I pray that it would sink in. I pray that it would humble us. I pray that it would motivate us. I pray that it would change us every day, God, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.